0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Joan of Arc. Please note in future episodes, I will have information about the release of a novel entitled, Is That Your Final Answer? Let's get started with our story about Joan of Arc. Few individuals in history elicit as much emotion and sentiment as does Joan of Arc. That an illiterate peasant girl could convince older and more sophisticated political and military figures to place her at the head of an army seems far-fetched. That this same woman, a teenager no less, would individually rejuvenate a demoralized and battered country that had suffered defeat and occupation in a war that had already lasted almost 100 years seems incredible. Her military exploits and eventual martyrdom would propel her to a legendary cultural and religious status that is enjoyed by few other historical personalities. That Joan of Arc was able to achieve such an extraordinary profile at the age of 18 borders on the supernatural." Although Joan lived in the early 15th century, her life has been officially documented like few other figures of the Middle Ages. Her numerous interrogations and testimony from several official proceedings, as well as relevant observations from many other contemporaries, were preserved and have remained accessible and intact for centuries. Although her life has also been endlessly mythologized and dramatized, the historical record exists to fully document who Joan was and what she actually accomplished. Joan of Arc was born sometime in January of 1412. The date of the 6th is traditionally mentioned. Her parents, Jacques and Isabel, were farmers who modestly tended a 50-acre plot in the village of Domremy, This tiny town was located in a remote area of Lorraine, a region loyal to the French monarchy, but surrounded by territory controlled by the Duchy of Burgundy. In the early 15th century, the Burgundians were allied with the English, who were waging a lengthy struggle to control both French territory and the French crown. Following the disastrous Battle of Agincourt in 1415, the French, under Charles VI, lost control of much of the territory north of the Loire River. Throughout the early years of Joan's life, the English repeatedly defeated the French forces and gained even more territory, and their ultimate victory and formal assumption of the French crown loomed as inevitable. The French cause was not aided by the frequent bouts of psychosis that plagued Charles VI throughout his reign. This behavior was especially limiting during warfare. England's Henry V, who began the latest invasion of France in 1415, suddenly died in 1422. His nine-month-old son, Henry VI, became king of England, while Henry V's brother, John of Lancaster, the Duke of Bedford, was appointed regent and focused on gaining complete military control of France. The French king Charles VI also died in 1422, Unofficially, his son, Charles VII, was in line to inherit the throne. But a peace treaty signed by his father in 1420 mandated that Charles VII be disinherited and that upon the death of Charles VI, Henry V and his heirs would become king of France. This development did not stop Charles VII from claiming the throne, and a sizable contingent still considered him as the legitimate heir to the crown of France, believing the treaty the result of coercion and Charles VI's mental instability. Unfortunately, in 1422, the English, through their alliance with the Burgundians, controlled the city of Reims, the traditional location for the coronation of French kings dating back to Clovis, the first king of the Franks in the 8th century. Until such time that Charles VII could officially be crowned in Reims, he would remain, even in the eyes of his most devoted followers, the Dauphin, the heir apparent to the French throne. For the next six years, the Dauphin would rule an ever-decreasing patch of territory south of the Loire. By late 1428, the English had placed the city of Orléans, under siege as the Duke of Bedford headed east, intent on subjugating the region of eastern France that borders present-day Germany. Although Joan of Arc's parents have been depicted as veritable serfs, they were a bit better off than most of their contemporaries. They own land, and Joan's mother was a close relative of a local official of the Catholic Church, a significant connection. Although many of the fables discussing her childhood told of Joan having an unusual ability to connect with animals and birds, the young girl's initial years were typical of most of the children who lived in rural France, helping her parents and siblings with the daily operation of the farm. It was not until the age of 13 that Joan exhibited behavior that marked her as unusual. She later testified officially that for the first time, after she began praying upon hearing the midday bell from the village church, she experienced a vision. The world around her disappeared into bright light, and she perceived what she described as a great host of angels, including St. Michael and St. Gabriel. St. Michael spoke to her and merely said, Be good and go to church often. From this moment on, Joan claimed to hear voices that guided her, she maintained a strictly devout outlook and spent every Saturday on a mini-pilgrimage several miles from her village to a hilltop chapel dedicated to the Virgin Mary. Over time, her voices became specific. She was to raise the siege of Orléans. To do this, she was to travel to the nearby town of Vaucouleur and ask the captain of the garrison, Robert de Baudricourt, to provide an escort to take her to the current seat of the Dauphin in Chinon over 300 miles away. Vaucouleur was one of the few prominent towns in the vicinity not under control of the English and the Burgundians. Because of tension between her father and herself, Joan enlisted another close relative to take her to see Robert. Initially reluctant to seek out an aristocrat, the relative was ultimately worn down by Joan's tenacity, and eventually they made the trek. Des Baudricourt initially dismissed the young girl, but as the situation in Orléans worsened and the remnants of Charles' supporters grew more desperate, word of the peasant girl promising deliverance circulated prominently. Eventually, the captain of the garrison was convinced, and he agreed to send Joan to the Dauphin with an entourage of six, his less-than-enthusiastic parting words, Go, and come what may. Joan had already undergone a remarkable transformation. Having come to Vaucouleurs, In a simple peasant dress, the local nobility decided that she needed to make an impression on the royal court so as not to embarrass them. She was provided with tailored men's clothes, typical of a nobleman. As she would be taking to the battlefield and fighting with and against men, she severely cut her hair, letting it barely cover her ears, a startling contrast to other women of the time period. Joan and her escort left Vaucouleurs on February 12th 1429, intent upon Chinon over 300 miles away. It would take three weeks for this contingent to reach the vicinity of the Dauphin's residence. Only a few hours away from Chinon, Joan began to send letters to Charles asking to be seen and emphasizing that she could be of great help. She waited for several days and then made her way to Chinon itself. That she and the small group of men accompanying her were able to safely make this journey through territory plagued by both politically hostile elements and criminal predators has been termed an indication of divine intervention. While this is impossible to substantiate, that Joan was able to reach Chinon without incident is certainly notable. Although two of the nobles who accompanied Joan were permitted to enter Charles castle, Joan was made to wait outside. They transmitted the fundamental but astonishing reason for her request for an audience that she was sent with divine power to lift the siege at Orléans and that she would lead the king to Reims for his rightful and proper coronation. Some of Charles' immediate courtiers were opposed to even listening to this strange supplicant, perhaps fearing any lessening of their own influence. Others, hearing of the divine aspect of her mission, were intrigued enough to want to at least give her the opportunity of a proper hearing. Typically, the indecisive Dauphin punted, He asked that a committee of court clerics ascertain that Joan was spiritually and morally pure. Ultimately, with this group's blessing, the meeting was arranged. One of the pillars of the Joan of Arc legend is that her initial encounter involved the stealth of members of the court who hid Charles behind them, attempting to demonstrate that she was a mere mortal with no special powers. Instead, Joan, with her voices to guide her, successfully thwarted this ruse and introduced herself to Charles, despite having no idea what he actually looked like. Although her first meeting with the Dauphin was dramatic, with her prostrating herself at his feet, it was also only a small group that comprised this first encounter. On her knees, Joan stated emphatically, "'Most noble Lord Dauphin, I have come and am sent by God to bring help to you and your kingdom.' Charles quickly decided to meet with her privately, Against the wishes of his advisors, when he emerged from this closed-door session, his personality exuded a rejuvenated confidence and elation. As to what she had said to produce such an outlook, Joan would never say, even while on trial for her life. Despite this positive first impression, Charles proclaimed that Joan would have to undergo a more formal inquiry conducted by an even larger group of clerics at Poitiers, one of the other remaining French-controlled towns in the region. Although no official document of this interaction exists, a historian and writer from the time period, Alain Chartier, described her as someone who would appear to have studied at a university as opposed to caring for sheep in the fields. By now, word of the existence of a deliverer, graced by God, had made its way into the population, and Joan was trailed by hundreds of people as she made her way to this official inquiry. Eighteen noted academic clerics from some of France's most noted institutions subjected her to questions to determine whether or not she was capable of achieving her clearly stated objectives. They attempted to get descriptions of what exactly were the voices that guided her and whether she was sincere or merely a false prophet and charlatan. In the end, they certified her as worthy of the court, Realistically, understanding that such an individual should be able to motivate a despondent population, a necessity based on the need for military success. On March 27, 1429, Joan was officially presented to the court of Charles VII in the Palace of Chinon in a formal ceremony witnessed by hundreds. One week later, she arrived in Tours, five miles away, where she was fitted with a custom suit of armor. Underneath this, she wore a quilted cloth stuffed with horsehair to protect the skin from abrasions and to provide further protection from especially arrows. Legend has it that she sent for a sword that was hidden in a nearby church. Concealed beneath the altar at St. Catherine de Fierbois, this weapon was rumored to have been used by Charles Martel, the Frankish conqueror of 8th century Moorish infidels. Charles VII paid for a large standard, twelve feet by three feet, with two tapered points that Joan would carry into battle. This made her inspirationally visible on the battlefield and prevented her from personally killing an opponent. When asked about this, she replied that her voices told her to do this and to put the names of Jesus and Mary in Latin on the standard. The flag was white linen, decorated with several angels and numerous gold fleur-de-lis, the symbol of the French king. Once armed. Joan set out for Blois, halfway between Chinon and Orléans, with an army of 2,500 men assembled by Charles VII. Here, in typical fashion, Joan decided to announce her presence to the enemy. Illiterate, she dictated a letter directed to the King of England, as well as many noblemen she listed by name, including the Duke of Bedford. She then described what would befall the English if they refused to retreat to their own country. Whenever I meet your followers in France, I will drive them out. If they will not obey, I will put them all to death. I am sent here in God's name, the King of heaven, to drive you body for body out of all France. She introduced herself as the maid or maiden and referred to herself with that name throughout the letter. Finally, she asked the English to, Answer if you desire peace in the city of Orléans. If not, bethink you of your great hurt soon. Issuing such a challenge to literal royalty was an act of great arrogance, especially as it came from a female peasant. The English were not impressed, and told the messenger who brought the letter that the maid should return home before they captured and burned her. Word of Joan's presence and her ability to excite the common people had already made its way to Orléans, and the English proposed that witchcraft or sorcery of some kind was the explanation for this capability. Joan responded by threatening to take up arms and acknowledging that they could burn her, but they would have to capture her first. At Blois, Joan and her army joined a convoy of 500 soldiers already assembling to attempt to break the siege and resupply Orléans. Marching in the lead, she was intent on heading directly towards the English troops concentrated at the western area of the city to engage them militarily as quickly as possible. However, Jean de Brasse, the Marshal of France actually in charge of the relief column, decided that resupplying the city before any hostilities started should be the convoy's initial objective. Unbeknownst to Joan, the column approached the city from the south, reaching the Loire approximately five miles to the east. There they were met by the garrison commander, Jean de Dunois, the illegitimate son of the Duke of Orléans. His father, captured in battle, was currently imprisoned in England. Angered by the deception, Joan was eventually persuaded to agree to the resupply of the city. Unfortunately, the prevailing breeze and shallow water would not allow for the assembled barges to cross the Loire. It was at this moment that another incident occurred that helped to establish Joan's credibility. While arguing with military leadership, she claimed that she was sent by God himself to attack the English as quickly as possible. Suddenly the prevailing winds changed and the river rose to a level that allowed the barges to raise their sails and successfully reach the other side of the Loire and an eastern route to the city. Residents of Orléans cooperated by launching a diversionary attack on the only English troops guarding this route into the city, allowing the successful entrance of Joan and the relief convoy. On the night of April 29th, 1429, She entered the eastern gate of Orléans, astride a white horse, brandishing her personal battle standard, greeted by thousands of the city's inhabitants. On the following day, she immediately began to demand that Jean de Dunois began preparations for an attack on the English. Joan's first battle was a modest assault on the two small English forts that blockaded the eastern route into the city. The first required three hours of fighting before the enemy was expelled, the second seized the following day without a fight, the English having retreated into more formidable forts to the west of the city. These larger forts, Les Augustins and Les Tourelles, blockaded the southern route across the Loire and, if captured, would effectively cripple the siege. The French attacked on May 6th, intent on Les Augustins. The battle lasted all day, but by nightfall the fort was in French hands. Les Tourelles was now cut off, but would still have to be stormed. The fort's defenders, knowing that they were essentially fighting for their lives, held off the French, and Joan, highly visible to all on the battlefield, was struck by an arrow late in the afternoon. The attack faltered, but when Joan suddenly reappeared, her wound minor, the assault, was rejuvenated. At this critical moment, additional soldiers emerged from behind the walls of the city and helped the attackers scale the walls of the fort, forcing La Torelles' surrender. The French had gained the upper hand, but several formidable English forts remained to the west of the city. Despite exhaustion and heavy casualties, and convinced that the English were preparing an attack, Joan led the French from behind the walls of the town and approached the English line of defense. Perhaps unwilling to initiate another grueling assault, the French waited for the English attack. It never came, The English had suffered heavy casualties and were rattled by the repeated success of the mysterious maiden who had taunted and now made good on her repeated threats to inflict death and destruction. They withdrew without further combat, and the city was rescued. After six months of siege and with the fate of the Kingdom of France hanging in the balance, a seventeen-year-old girl freed Orléans in just four days of fighting, destroying the English myth of inevitability. This news spread across France and throughout Europe, proof that the maiden was the instrument of the Almighty. While the residents of Orléans packed the churches in thanks, Joan quickly left the city, accompanied by des Dunois intent on Chinon. With a lot more credibility, she proposed that Charles proceed to Reims for the all-important official coronation. Unfortunately, the financially strapped Charles was not in a position to immediately put the necessary army into the field, the effort at Orléans having depleted whatever resources he had. Additionally, English garrisons along the Loire would also have to be captured to ensure the success of such a mission. It would not be until early June that the French were fully prepared. The second phase of the Loire offensive was militarily led by the 23-year-old Duke of Orleans who quickly befriended Joan. Also present were Jean de Dunois and other knights who had fought beside the maiden at Orléans, including Etienne de Vignol, nicknamed La Hira, or the Hedgehog, Gilles de Ray, and Jean Ponton de centrales This force set out from Orléans and by June 11th approached Jargot, ten miles up the Loire, the closest English stronghold, A long-rumored English relief column from Paris was imminent, and the town was fortified by a wall, moat, and heavy artillery. When some of her captains hesitated, Joan led an attack that captured the outskirts of the town and drove the English behind the walls of their fortress. She then sent a typically strident message, demanding surrender to the King of Heaven. Otherwise, she would impose a massacre. No English mocked her now, but they refused to submit, and Jargot would have to be taken by force. Similar to the attack on the forts at Orléans, the French employed tall siege ladders to scale the walls of the town, Joan in the forefront. She was hit in the head by a large stone thrown by an English soldier, knocking her to the ground. Luckily, her steel helmet absorbed much of the blow, and she quickly stood up and continued the assault, which resulted in the town's surrender. The army commanded by the Duke of Alençon now numbered approximately 7,000 men. Recruitment was no longer difficult, the French inspired by seeming divine intervention. But the long-rumored English relief column under John Fastolf had finally reached the vicinity of Beaugency, one of the garrison towns that Joan and Alençon were intent on recapturing. Fastolf was an experienced commander who had already defeated the French four months earlier, just as Joan was making her way to Chinon. He was also present at Agincourt, and he believed that as opposed to the successful French garrison attacks, the English merely needed to engage in a pitched battle with more typical tactics of the day. While the French allowed for a negotiated surrender and retreat of English forces at Beaugency, Fastolf welcomed these reinforcements and prepared for a possible showdown. Earlier French commanders might have been happy to allow Fastolf to retreat all the way to Paris, but Joan urged pursuit. On the outskirts of the town of Pate, Fastolf placed a vanguard of 500 archers among the fields that bordered the road to Paris, perfectly concealed to inflict an ambush that would precede the typical English archery slaughter of the time period, this position was revealed to French advance scouts when a single stag wandered in front of the English and drew their attention, as well as a few arrows. The scouts returned to the French camp with word of the exact location of the enemy, and within minutes a massively superior force of 1,500 horsemen bore down on the English position. Not wanting to reveal their whereabouts, the English archers had not deployed their usual defensive line of wooden stakes that prevented protection from a frontal assault. Without infantry support, the archers were quickly killed or captured, and the French column continued up the road and quickly attacked the already discouraged remainder of the English troops. In less than two hours, the French inflicted a major defeat killing hundreds and taking over 2,000 prisoners, including most of the English command. Fastolf managed to escape, but his reputation was permanently ruined, and he is believed to be the model for the Shakespearean comedic character Sir John Falstaff, a slovenly fat drunkard. This decisive French victory was the conclusion of the Loire campaign, put an end to a generation of English domination, and was the turning point of the One Hundred Years' War. Joan now felt compelled to fulfill the second of her stated promises, to convey the Dauphin to Reims and his rightful coronation as Charles VII, a process that began on June 27, 1429. The march through territory, officially occupied by the English, proved relatively uneventful, as the occupier did not have the military capability to garrison most of the towns of the region. One exception occurred at Troyes, where a force of 500 seemed determined to stand in Joan's way. Aware of Joan's victories, they were, however, unaware of the size of the army now supporting the Dauphin and quickly retreated behind the walls of the city center. A negotiation ensued in which a local religious figure, a charismatic preacher by the name of Brother Richard, demanded to certify Joan's authenticity and that she was not, as was now widely circulated among the English, a witch whose exploits were the result of sorcery. If only to effect a rapid resolution to this standoff without bloodshed, Joan agreed to a face-to-face meeting with Richard, a confrontation at which the friar disrespectfully splashed her with holy water, presuming that this would induce a visible blistering and burning of her flesh. When this didn't occur, The preacher was handed a typical letter addressed to the townspeople from Joan that stated if the town did not recognize Charles as the king of France that, by the will of God, that she and the army would compel them to do so. It took the townspeople approximately a day to think this over. Ultimately, they surrendered, and Charles entered the city at the head of a procession with Joan of Arc riding next to him. The rest of the journey to Reims was uneventful the natives welcoming French monarchy that had not been seen in two decades. Although the English allied Burgundians had also withdrawn from the area, they did not do so before looting the cathedral of many of its holy relics, which included joyeuse, the legendary sword of Charlemagne described in the Song of Roland, and used in French coronations since the 13th century. But the holy ampule, or San ampoule, The sacred glass vial that contained the perpetual oil used to anoint the king of France had been hidden in a monastery and was utilized during a solemn ceremony that included Joan and the military figures who made the occasion possible. Despite the presence of these and other authority figures, only Joan's standard was permitted in the church. Upon the official completion of Charles' coronation, Joan was overcome with emotion and knelt before him in tears, her mission fulfilled. Charles and his entourage spent several weeks in the vicinity of Reims, celebrating his coronation. As a commoner, Joan was excluded from these events, but animosity and jealousy within the court, at her high profile and powerful influence, probably also instigated this exclusion. Clearly, the next military objective for the French army should have been the liberation of Paris, the largest city in France and the most prestigious in Europe. But at this crucial juncture, the English dangled a truce in front of Charles, who sent his court chamberlain, George de la Tremoille, to negotiate with the Duke of Burgundy. De la Tremoille, a duplicitous and calculating courtier, resented and feared Joan of Arc and had a negative reaction to her from her first appearance at Chinon. As Charles celebrated, the negotiations quickly became a stalling tactic for the English to organize and provision a defense of Paris. Although impatient to begin an assault, Joan would have to console herself with an entitlement from the newly crowned king. Her hometown of Domremy would be permanently exempted from taxation, a decree probably issued to distract her from Charles' recent lack of military initiative. The ruse of peace negotiations was underlined on August 7th when the Duke of Bedford issued a proclamation openly challenging Charles to meet in battle. He disparaged the king as a pretender, underlined the English alliance with the Burgundians, and specifically referred to Charles as aided by superstitious and damnable persons, such as a woman of disorderly and infamous life, dressed in man's clothes, and of immoral conduct. The English were no longer looking for peace, By August 15th, the French were on the outskirts of the city. It was at this point that Joan's effectiveness began to wane. Now that he was officially crowned, Charles VII seemed less interested in the type of military effort it would take to capture Paris and expel the English. Twice, Joan would attempt to launch an attack on the city. The first effort resulted in a stalemate about 30 miles away when the Duke of Bedford marched 8,000 troops to a defensive position to halt the French advance. Charles then began a series of negotiations that left Joan merely in a position to approach Paris and attempt to determine a weak point in the city's defenses. Eventually, the French king half-heartedly gave her permission to attack the city with a force that was reduced by volunteers leaving after the coronation unpaid and unwilling to continue. Joan led a full-scale attack on a 30-foot-high wall at one of the gates entering Paris. Heavily fortified, the city's defenders inflicted heavy casualties, including a crossbow bolt wound to Joan's thigh that forced her to be carried from the battlefield, her standard no longer visible. The French were repelled with heavy losses of 1,500 men. Following this debacle, Charles forbade any future attacks on Paris. For the first time, doubt about Joan's divinely inspired capability began to surround her. The winter of 1429-1430 was spent either cooling her heels or in minor conflicts meant to distract Joan from leading another attack on Paris. Charles did confer the rank of nobility on her and her family, but this was merely another concession meant to divert her from the battlefield and her incessant demands for aggression against the English. She also resided in the Loire Valley Chateau of Georges de la Tremoille with the rest of the French court 30 miles outside of Orléans, a location that kept her close to her political competitors and a witness to Charles' lack of initiative or interest in liberating additional French territory. Most likely bored by this inaction, she began to send dictated accusatory letters to the Hussites of Bohemia, Czech supporters of a movement to split from the Roman Catholic Church based on issues involving corruption and separation of church and state. Finally, Joan's impatience got the better of her in May of 1430. In one of several truces negotiated with the English, Charles had agreed to give up control of several French towns, including Compiegne, a location that was hostile to both the English and the Burgundians. Understanding that the residents of this town would resist occupation, Joan decided to aid the opposition, and without Charles' permission, she set off with any troops willing to follow her into battle. During the previous year, she had led as many as 10,000 enthusiastic soldiers on the March to Rance and the Coronation. Less than a year later, her adherents numbered about 500, and they set off to assist with the defense of Compan. Even more significant, Joan would not be accompanied by the many military leaders who accompanied her during her successful engagements. Understanding the political realities of alienating Charles and his close advisors by engaging in further conflict, they did not participate. On the way, Joan defeated a small force of mercenaries at Ligny and recaptured the town, restoring it to its residents. This conflict significant in that it was the last successful military conflict of Joan's life. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Joan of Arc. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Joan of Arc, Her Story by Regine Pernou, Joan of Arc, A Life Transfigured by Katherine Harrison, and Joan of Arc, A History by Helen Castor. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.